And so we have to find a way to, to be a family of God in Christ in which all the dividing walls of hostility are taken down because of Christ. And so Jinting um, is our person this morning. There's like eight more in the pipeline, but I would love to do this for like 160 weeks, okay? Because this is so central to what it means to be the church. So if there's something that's, been, that's gone on in your experience of being at High Point Church, that where you have felt the dividing walls of hostility holding you out, you felt that, and you'd be willing to write with, with Nicole's and my help a testimony to share with us so that we can pray in the direction of not being that kind of people and to include you and love you and folks experiencing what you're experiencing, I would, we'd love to get a, a testimony from you. So um, please, if you haven't done one already, but you really have a good testimony that could really help us, I pray that God would give you the courage and the willingness to love us in that way. Because like, like Lloyd said last week, right, two of the things that bring us together is worship, when we all join together worship, and confrontation, when we have to share with each other what's wrong. So let's listen to Jinting, and then I'll come back and pray. Thanks, Nick. Good morning, High Point. My name is Jian Ting He. I was born in China, but have lived in the U.S. since I was six years old. Growing up, I felt caught between two separate worlds, not belonging to either one. I grew distanced from Chinese culture, but also experienced racial prejudice and discrimination from peers and teachers. I was told by several friend groups that although they let me hang out with them, I'm still different. My experience at High Point has been overwhelmingly positive, even though it took a long time to really connect. Yet from time to time, I notice that people treat me differently or make assumptions about me because I'm Chinese. I don't think this is intentional, but rather people are unaware of how their, prejud how their prejudice affects me. Once I was volunteering with one of the children's ministries at High Point, and another adult joked in the presence of children that I must be good at math because I'm Asian. Though I knew that no offense was intended this time, I felt disillusioned that even now in church, I experienced the same labels that I've known since I was in school. This stereotype used to be the basis of unkind jokes and mocking frequently directed at me by other students. It was discouraging to hear this joke being made in front of children who may grow up thinking that such labels are okay. Sometimes, instead of asking the open-ended, what do you do question, people ask if I'm a Chinese international student. It is very subtle, but when people assume that I'm an international, it brings up the feelings of being different and not belonging that I've struggled with all my life. I also feel less eager to open up when I have to first correct such assumptions. But I know that I'm, I'm not a victim because I have been part of the problem too. It took me a long time to connect at High Point, partly because I internalized the notion of being different and often backed away from opportunities to connect. I was quick to assume that people who act nice at church don't actually care for me. Ironically, this attitude turned me into the same uncaring person I was trying to protect myself from. By God's grace, I still made some attempts to break through this wall. I gradually, un I gradually realized my twisted thinking as I was drawn into new friendships by both individuals and families. I have to recognize my notion of being different as a lie, not because it's untrue, but because it distracts me from the greater truth that Jesus Christ died to break down the barriers that separate us. We all face the decision of whether to partake in Christ's work of bringing unity. 
Though it will be a painful and humbling process whose timing we can't control, we have hope in the gospel. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working to create a new people unified by his work on the cross. It's a blessing that Jesus invites flawed people to be part of his work, that we have a God of second chances who gives us the opportunity to continue striving for unity together as a body of Christ. Thank you. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, High Point. Good morning, second service of High Point. Um, I'll be reading the scripture for today. Um, uh, the scripture is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. It can be found on page 1778 of your pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 3, starting from verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people, holy people, to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Femi. This passage that we're going to be talking about today is one of the richest um, passages in one of the densest and richest books of the Bible. Um, so we asked Ella Shorter, one of the artists in the church, to make a print of the prayer. Um, that you, you can get a copy of it just outside the sanctuary to your left a little bit there. And it's free. Just go ahead and take it. Um, but you may want to put it in something or put it on a mirror or put it in your devotional book or whatever. Because if, the more you pray this, the better you'll pray. And the more you study this, the more you'll get out of it. This is just a really great passage. Also, um, Engage and Equip is, avail is open this Monday to anybody who serves in any capacity in High Point. If you've never gone to an Engage and Equip before, but you serve, please come. Because this Engage and Equip is specifically to thank everybody who served at High Point in any capacity. And I, I tried to, we tried to structure it by um, WWAS, which is what would Alexi say, my wife? And it is, one of the things is, if you have an evening event in which I still have to cook dinner for our family, you are not helping me. So this is why there's Chick-fil-A. So, so for the, especially those of you who are moms and dads who have to cook dinner and get it on the table and do all that and then go to a church thing, we specifically got food so you do not have to cook, you do not have to clean. All you have to do is come and play and let your kids mess around and enjoy yourself. So we just want to say thank you. <clears throat> um, one of the things I would always hoped in a church that I pastor that it would be something like Acts 19, which is when Paul is in Ephesus, building the church in Ephesus, and God is doing great things through him. And one of the things he does is he lectures in this lecture hall called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus for two years. And it says that from that ministry, all of Asia heard the gospel, right? Now, Asia in that context is basically Western Turkey. Um, but one of the things that we have the privilege to do is that we get to send um, Manohar to another part of Asia, southern, the southern Asian subcontinent of India, and he's going to be doing um, three big seminars for lots of pastors, training them 
almost all these pastors who have had no training at all in any kind of Bible college anywhere. Some of them now are coming who have had Bible college training because the specific training that we give, they don't teach in Bible college. It's the contextualization work of actually doing ministry as a missionary. And that is not often taught in the Bible colleges, so we're letting some of them come now because they haven't gotten this training and it's very helpful to them. Um, Minohar, this last week, decided to play volleyball with some of his evangelistic friendships in which—and he broke himself. <laughs> Just before he's going to travel internationally to India, a place where we often, like, ride on motorcycles for multiple hours. So, um, <clears throat> we're going to pray for him to receive the grace— uh, like his, his knee is just not stable, and he's going to be doing a lot of traveling on trains and in cars and in airplanes, and he's bringing the whole family. So um, he's got uh, clearly small potatoes in tow, and um, <clears throat> so if you would just, if you want to stretch out your hand, at least stretch out your heart. Let's pray for these guys as they get ready to go. Father, we lift up Manohar and Jasmine and Jonathan and Jason to you, God, and we pray that you would give them the grace and the strength and the power needed for the ministry they're going to do. We pray that their family times would be sweet and good. We pray that you would give Manohar's mother and father good health to receive their grandchildren. We pray that you would do a, a, a beautiful work in, in uniting their family as they've been apart for so long. But God, in relationship to the ministry that they'll be doing, we pray that you'd give them fruitfulness and power. We pray that um, Manohar's knee would not be a hindrance. In fact, we pray that you would heal it powerfully. We pray that you'd stabilize it. We pray that you would mend it. Lord, in the name of Jesus. And we pray, Father, that whatever you, cause, you call him to bear in this trip as a family or himself, that he would bear, bear it with a beautiful countenance of patience and love towards all the people around him, that even in his pain, that the self-forgetfulness in his heart towards his love for the people around him would be evident. And we pray that you would bring anybody necessary to serve him, to come and serve him will, willingly and out of love and grace. And we pray most of all for the thing you have said you desire, that you would be glorified, that people's hearts would be turned to you, and that you would receive godly offspring. People who've turned their hearts to you and belong to you and are your children through faith. And we pray, God, that you would create a fruitfulness in this ministry. We also pray for all the donors that received letters and that he's called out to to help pay for these expensive seminars to train these pastors. We pray that they would well up with generosity and give more than enough to pay for this. And God, we pray for each pastor that they would focus on what they're learning. They would take away the maximum amount and they would be enriched powerfully in their mission to their churches. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. God bless you, man. This is a difficult passage for two reasons. One is it's super dense, and so we could do a sermon on almost every phrase, and we still wouldn't exhaust the thing. And so it's kind of terrifying to make decisions about what to focus on, what not to. The second thing is, is that it's on something so absolutely central to all of what Christian faith is, that it's so central, it becomes axiomatic. And when things become axiomatic, they easily become cliches. And when things become cliches, we don't pay any attention to them. It's one of the difficulties is that some of the most important things in our lives and some of the most important truths that should move us the most oftentimes become almost cliches in our minds so that they don't do anything to us. One of the reasons when my kids were a little bit younger, there was a time where Alexa and I were like, okay, no more listening to Christian radio, okay? Because our kids listened to Christian radio and they loved it and we liked it because they weren't listening to pop music. But we were like, okay, look, you just got to turn this off. And it wasn't because the songs weren't good. The songs were good. It was because sometimes when you handle important, sacred, deep things, like 
constantly. You're like always listening to it. And you're, it's, you're like, you're listening to the truths about the glory of God in all of the universe while you're like sweeping. After a while, it just doesn't, it just feels like the truth is just background noise. Like the, the glory of God is like background noise. And it, you're, there was a time where I was like, this is good, but it's not good. You know what I mean? Um, when I used to do internships at um, Lynn Haven in Florida, one of the axioms that people had, the interns had to memorize the first week was that anything can sound ridiculous if you use the right tone of voice. Partly because, like, at least Gen X on, the last three generations in particular have used sarcasm a lot. And it's partly a rebellion against what they considered a sentimentalism in earlier generations, right? I'm beginning to realize that that was a huge mistake. Um, That we have actually um, undermined our capacity to love by using sarcasm. And it's actually created a hole in our hearts and an incapacity to feel things that we have to feel in order to have a rich life with each other. And I see increasingly younger generations, the more people are brutalized by the results of the sexual revolution in particular, but also by our culture of triviality. They—I've had so many young people tell me, like, I don't even—I don't feel any feelings of love. I don't even know what love feels like. I don't even know what that means, right? And it's not because they don't have the capacity to love. Everyone has the capacity to love. And everybody can rehabilitate the capacity to love if, if if you've twisted it or squelched it or dried it up. The Spirit of God can rehabilitate a deep capacity to feel in you, right? But our culture does that because we, we treat things trivially, and we, we know that like anything we want to make fun of, we just, we just treat it like it's ridiculous, and so it must be. But the fact is there's other people out there who take the things you find the most sacred, and they say them with a ridiculous, sarcastic tone of voice, and they think that they've humiliated the things you feel the most passionate about, right? And it, it's not an argument. It's just sneering. Right? Um, one of those things that becomes an axiom because it's so true that easily be, feels like a cliche is that Jesus loves you, or the phrase, the love of Christ. Right? Like, it's, it becomes so, like, it can be repeated so much, and said so much, and read so much, and stated so much, that it doesn't do anything for you. When I go to kids' camps, the, the first message I do every night when I talk to teenagers is, when they're Christian teenagers, they're from Christian families, I say, listen, Jesus loves you. And then I say, here's your dirty little secret. I just said that. It's the most important sentence in the universe, and it just did nothing for you emotionally. And they go, did you just really say that? Because it's true. It does nothing for them emotionally. Because it becomes an axiom. It becomes, it becomes like just a cliche, right? The problem with that is, is that if you look at this verse— this set of verses, this prayer that the Apostle Paul is praying for God's people. He's not writing down his prayer because he thinks that letting them in on his stream of consciousness is just like somehow helpful. He's going to scratch it out on like woven papyrus just because he feels like it. The reason he's writing this prayer to people is because he wants them to know the theology in his prayer, what he believes about God, so that he prays this way. So that if we read and understand this prayer and what it means and the assumptions and the theology in the prayer, we would pray very different and we would pray so much better and we would pray so much more. Because prayer is one of the first things people give up on because we're so much more secular than we think we are. And prayer is one of the few spiritual disciplines of all the religions that secularism sneers at the fastest. Because meditation, you can, secularists can work with that. Sam Harris, one of the most famous— acerbic atheists does Buddhist meditation. 
There are many spiritual disciplines that can just be psychologically spiritual. They don't have to assume that there is another person who is a spiritual being who is there, who is interacting with you and listening and attending to you. Prayer always has to assume that. Right? And it's one of the reasons why you can have Christians who even study and read their Bibles and who engage in some other spiritual disciplines, even spiritual disciplines that are difficult, like fasting. But you see, fasting doesn't have to be about God. It can be just getting control of your appetite and not being a slave to your nerves. Only prayer must assume the reality of a God who is a father, who is sovereign and loving, who is present, who you must interact with, who you must be honest with. And it's one of the reasons why so little prayer is done, even by pastors. But yet, like, what you can't get away from is what Paul is saying is the most important thing about your experience of Christian faith, the thing that will determine the capacity and the power of faith in Christ in your life, is how, how strong you have become in the Spirit or in God to be able to see and know this thing called the love of Christ. That will define everything about you. Now, for some people, that seems weird because they're like, Nick, I'm a Christian. I already know about the love of Christ. Like, I wouldn't be a Christian if I didn't believe in the love of Christ, right? You become a Christian because you get—receive the message that God is sovereign and created us. We have fallen into sin and, and brokenness. That God has both condemned that as judgment-worthy and given us a way out of it through the, the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that that is the display of the love of God for us. And that in the love of Christ, if we believe in him, we can be saved or forgiven and receive the love of God in the love of Christ and so be saved. Like, I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe in the love of Christ. And my answer is, yes, you do. And no, you don't. And this is very important because this is the reason why people who are professing Christians lose their faith and leave the church for the most part. Because they think they understand the love of Christ, but what, what they have is they have this conceptualization of the love of Christ. They have a way they have explained it and understood it to themselves. And that amount of conceptualization is fine for the point in their life where they came to Jesus originally. Or if you're still in the church, it's been sufficient so far for you. But for some of you, you're really struggling. Like your faith isn't doing it for you. It's not answering the questions. It's not comforting you in the dark places. Like, you're really struggling with it. And see, the, the issue is, is that what the Apostle Paul is actually saying is not that you would get an initial introduction to the love of Christ, but that there would be an increasing and exponential expansion of your capacity to see the broadness of the beauty of the love of Christ so that it would strike you with ever-increasing internal expansion and wonder. And in that expansion is, an, is a certain kind of nourishment and power that makes you strong enough to walk in the love of Christ. Let I me mean, think about this for a minute. Um, some of you are in this room, you come from Christian families, and like you accepted Jesus when you were like five, right? Now, when you were five and you accepted Christ, did you believe in the love of Christ? And the answer is yes, you did, right? You were like, this is the logic. Mommy tells me the truth. Mommy tells me there's a Jesus. Mommy tells me that I've sinned. That's probably right, right? Mommy tells me that God's solution for this is believing in Jesus. I believe mommy, therefore I believe in Jesus. Therefore I believe in Jesus. I add faith. I'm a—I believe in—I love Jesus. I'm a Christian, right? Now does that kid believe in the love of Christ? And the answer is yes, they do. Yes, they do. 
But is that conceptualization going to do it for them when they're 16? Of course not. And yet we think our conceptualizations when we're 12 are going to do it for us when we're 23. Or that the conceptualization of the love of Christ that we had when we were 23 is going to do it for us when we're 35. Listen, the conceptualization of the love of Christ that got you through middle school may not get you through your 20s. And the one that got you through your 20s may not get you through your 30s when you're married and your wife gets cancer and your kids are being wayward. You need a bigger, you need an ever-increasing, expanding wonder in your heart as God grows your ability to see and know the love of Christ. The heart of this passage is a contradictory statement, right? It is—the heart of this passage is the, sta- the statement that we are to know the incomprehensible. It literally is that you would know the unknowable or that you would comprehend the incomprehensible, right? That's the statement. Now, there's two ways to think about something that's incomprehensible or unknowable. One is that it's inscrutable, meaning like you can't make any sense out of it. The other is expansive, that you can't get your mind around it. Now, those are two very different things. The 1998 winner of the terrible writing or bad writing competition was this excerpt. All— All of the excerpts that win the bad writing competitions, you will notice, are not from sixth graders, but always from highly trained PhD-level academics. Okay? This is the one that won in 1998. The move from a structuralist account in which capital is understood to structure social relations in relatively homologous ways to a view of hegemony in which power relations are subject to repetition, convergence, and rearticulation— brought the question of temporality into the thinking of structure and marked a shift from a form of Althusserian theory that takes structure totalities as theoretical objects to one in which the insights into the contingent possibility of structure inaugurate a renewed conception of hegemony as bound up with the contingent sites and strategies of the rearticulation of power. Right? Now, God bless you who are going to college because— you're going to read a bunch of that stuff, okay? And if you think, when you go to college and you're like, I think this is just bad writing. Listen, nobody writes as bad as academics, right? Like, I feel like English—like, people make fun of English departments, but I think one of the ways English departments can totally pull their weight is if every academic article, everybody with a PhD right has to go through the English department. I think they would just bless us so much, because what else are they doing, right? So anyway, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) More walls of hostility. No, I'm just kidding. But, but like, the opposite of that would be learning about the universe, right? So you, you can, like, study how big the universe is, right? How many galaxies it has, how far apart they are, how many stars there are, how many different kinds of elements, how they're intricately physically related, how if you change some of the physical constants, one millionth of one percent, right, the whole universe would have collapsed in on itself, and you could have had a big bang, and blah, blah, blah. And you can, like, as you add to that, it's not like you can't understand it. But you always have the sense that, like, your mind is never going to get around it. As it grows, it changes you. You learn more. You see more. It inflicts upon you a sense of wonder. Wow, the universe is so big. It's so beautiful and so full and so diverse and so intricate and so dependent and so and so and so. And, like, it'll just blow your mind, and yet you don't comprehend it. Does that make sense? And you see— When this passage, Paul says, you need to comprehend the incomprehensible, what he's saying is this. He's saying that 
in, it, with cameras, there was this thing called an aperture, which was this thing that decided how much light the camera would let in. And the more you open it, the more light was let in, and the more exposure there was, right? And what the Apostle Paul is saying is he's saying the most important thing about how your faith actually functions is for you to open yourself up to the power of God given by his Spirit into what he calls the inner man or your inner person. And the work of the Spirit, what he's going to do is he's going to cause Christ to dwell in you, root and establish you in love, so that you can determine or see and be strong enough to know this thing that is high and wide and broad and deep, this thing that is, that you could know the unknowable, which is this thing, the love of Christ. You see, because the limitation of the strength of our faith and the power we receive from the beauty of the love of Christ is limited not by the largeness of the love of Christ, but by your spiritual aperture, the size and openness of your conceptualization of the beauty of the glory of Christ and his love. It has to be open. The most important spiritual thing about your spiritual development is your capacity to comprehend in an ever-widening amount the love of Christ. And the love of Christ is as big as the galaxy. The question is, how big is your aperture? You see, for most of us, we're functioning on the day we got saved apertures. Or we're functioning on as open as I can make it without endangering my political views. Or we're functioning on as open as I can make it without putting any effort into my religion. I mean, I ain't reading the Bible or something like that, you know? Or as open as we can make it while still holding on to all my grievances against people who have hurt me. Or as open as I can make it, so long as I'm still right and my wife is still wrong. Or as open as I can make it, etc. It's killing you. It's killing you. Because the most important thing, the, it's the one—listen to me. It's the one thing that Paul prays for. He prays for one thing. That's it. If this one thing happens, everything's going to go. And if this one thing does not happen, nothing is going to go. And he doesn't save this for the part where he tells people to do actively. All the verbs of this passage are passive. This is about receiving God. In later passages, he'll say, do this and don't do that. Because if you have this power that comes from this passage, you'll be able to do those things and not do other things. But this is the heart of it. Will you submit to receiving God spiritually so that his work in you will be to ever increase your conceptualization, ever open your spiritual aperture, ever strengthening you in your inner person, so that your conception, your ability to see and know and savor and enjoy the love of Christ is ever expanding, realizing you will never get your head around it. And that it's not inscrutable. God did not love you in such a way that you can't make any sense of it. He has loved you in the most sensible way possible through personal sacrifice, coming as a human being and dying and shedding his blood. Like, there's nothing more tactile. There's nothing more comprehensible than somebody sacrificing for you. There's nothing inscrutable about it. But it's expansive, and you and I have to expand. Some of you are conservative by nature. You're just conservative people. You like to, like, get focused on things, get it right, right? And there's a lot of good things about being conservative right? You just make less mistakes. You focus on correcting things, like you get everything right. You order things well. The world needs people like you. But listen, there's a way in which you need to be open. There's a way in which you can't grow. You can't even know what to conserve 
until you open yourself wide open to receive something. And that thing to open yourself wide open to receive is the love of Christ, an expanding vision of the love of Christ that you could never see if you do not receive strength. Notice that the language in this passage is there's two references to God's power, and there's two references to the effect of God's power being to strengthen you so that you can see it and feel it and know it. Right? So let's— Let's go through the content of this passage so that we can— and I'm going to do this a lot faster. That's like half the sermon, okay? So, um, so that you know, so you're like, okay, wait. So you're saying that all the verbs in this are passive. So like God is doing something, yes, and you're responding to something. So we have to get ourselves in a more responsive frame of mind. How do you respond to? How do you take advantage of? How do you receive something? Because receiving things sometimes is just as important as doing things, Right? And so there's, there's five ways this passage just focuses on how do you receive God in such a way as for him to strengthen you in your inner person so that you can open up this aperture and open up the expansive sense of the love of Christ to fill you with wonder and strength and love and hope and the things that are necessary for you to have a faith that will carry you through anything and into eternity. Okay? So the first one is, pray like Paul, man. You gotta pray like this guy. You gotta pray like Paul. One, you gotta pray <laughs> at all. And then two, you gotta pray like the, pers- the person you're praying to is there. That he's a big God. He is sovereign and serious. He's not like your little buddy. He is sovereign and king over everything, and he is serious about it. And he is also a loving father whose wealth— of what to give, and his willingness to graciously give it is beyond what you can imagine. That's what you have to see in your mind's eye when you pray. He's sovereign, and he's serious. Don't—you don't play around with him. You don't treat him like you're like, oh, he's my little buddy. He's not. He's the king of everything, seen and unseen, from eternity past to eternity future. Do not toy around with God in how you speak to him and relate to him. And yet, he is the father of all fatherhoods, he is wealthy in what he can give beyond your wildest dreams, and he is gracious and willing to give it. Now, if you notice in the passage, the grounds on which he prayed, he, the Apostle Paul does not pray, God, you know, I, I pray that God, to the extent to which you're a godly person, will strengthen you, right? He says, I pray, this is verse 16, I pray that out of his, out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power. Now, in the English translation, it says, I pray—okay, so in the, uh, the original language, the, the, this I pray, there's two I prays, or three I prays. None of those are in the original language, okay? The reason why they're in your English translation are because um, verses 14 all the way through verse 19 is all one sentence in Greek, okay? And so the English translators, because sentences aren't supposed to be that long in English, they break it up into three sentences. And because the be- in the beginning, he sa- he sa- Paul says, I get on my knees for this reason— Obviously, getting on your knees in this context means to pray. So they insert prayer in there because that's what he's talking about, right? But what he, act- what he says here is actually not, I pray that out of his glorious riches, the, the preposition in Greek is kata, which means according to. Meaning that, so, so if God is going to give you something, right? He's not saying, I want God to give it to you out of his riches. He's got a lot of riches. Where is he going to get what he's going to give for you? He's going to get it out of his riches. That's not what the preposition means. What the preposition means is it according to, right? So am I going to give you something or not? 
Well, on what basis would I give it to you or not give it to you? On what basis? Because you're a good person? Because you're not a good person? What? Well, according to, right, the basis of it, according to not how good you are, but according to the wealth I possess. You see what he's saying? He's not saying God has enough because he's rich. He's saying the reason and the way I'm praying that God would choose to give to you is not on the basis of how good you are, but according to the amount of riches he has, not your goodness. And you see that, if it's in accordance with that, which is how God chooses to give, he's not going to hold back. He does it according to his wealth, not according to our goodness. Does that make sense? Okay, the second thing is, You have to actually emotionally and personally and spiritually open yourself to God's power by his spirit in your inner being, okay? The literal phrase used by Paul is the inner man. Now, if you are um, feministly offended by that, the the word man is anthropos, which is the generic for humanity. So you can say in your inner humanity. But the point of saying inner man is because the word man is more personal than humanity. The idea is that there is an inner person to you. In fact, you mostly recognize and think of yourself as what's going on inside of you. That inner person is who you think you are. Your inner man, so to speak. Does that make sense? And he's saying what needs to happen is God is going to give his power to you, not by changing your circumstances, not by making you as strong as the Hulk, not by doing the things you actually want him to do in your life, by changing stuff. But what he's, what he's going to do is he's going to give you power through his spirit. Right? It's— a, He's going to give you spiritual power, and he's going to give you spiritual power in a very particular place, your inner person. Okay? Now, what that means is the first thing you have to do is you got to open yourself to that. You got to open your—you got to first tell God you want it. And you'd be like, well, I'm a a Christian already. No, no, no. (laughs) No, no, no. In prayer, you need to tell God often— God, I want to open myself to your power by your spirit to work in me because I need this strength. Please work in this inner man, this inner person inside of me, and please give me the strength that I need to see the beauty of the love of Christ. I need it. I need it terribly. Right? You have to actually—and here's the other thing. You need to do it on his terms. So don't do it thinking you can hold all your grudges. You can't. Because what do you think the first thing the Holy Spirit in your inner person making Christ dwell in you, what do you think the first thing he's going to do with? He's going to be like, you know that? You know that resentment? Right? Or that hatred, or that unwillingness to obey, or that thing that you think your life won't be happy without. And so part of it is the repentance and obedience of recognizing when I open myself up, I'm, I'm opening myself up. It's true. Listen, anytime you open yourself up to anybody for any reason in any way, it creates vulnerability. Right? But listen, God is really the only person you can trust with your heart entirely. That doesn't mean you're not going to get hurt. You, you will never be hurt for any purpose other than surgery. You will never be cut for any other reason than love. And he's the only person you can 100% trust. Does that make sense? Now, what happens, right? In, in, a, in the passage, it says, so that. In the Greek, it doesn't say so. That. It just says that, right? So God gives us his spirit in our inner being in order to give us power to strengthen us. Why? That. So what that produces is this. That, that we would seek to establish the dwelling of Christ in our hearts through faith. 
right? He says, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, right? So what does that mean? It's one thing to say that you've accepted Jesus or believe in Jesus. It's another thing to, in your mind, conceptualize your heart. That is the place of your inner person where all your emotions are, where all of your memories are, where all of your character is, where all of your—all of the, the inner workings of your inner life are as like a home, a dwelling, and Jesus dwells there, and it actually belongs to him. You've been stewarding it. You didn't do a very good job. Now he's come back to his home, and you're going to live in there with him too, right? But it's his— and see, I, sometimes you hear this from men who get married, who, especially if they've been bachelors for a while, they're like, I married this woman, and she thinks like she automatically gets to get rid of my stuff. You know, like I've heard this from a bunch of guys. Like, like my wife at, at least was kind enough to tell me that she was going to get rid of all my stuff before we got married. She's like, we're getting rid of your haircut. We're getting rid of all your furniture. We're getting rid of, And I was just like, well, I guess I'm marrying a woman. So, I mean, this was bound to happen, you know? And, you know, like, but I've talked to guys, and they're like, you know, like, he wants, she wants to get rid of my elk head, and she wants to get rid of, you know, and you're like, yeah. Now, I'm not saying that women should be able to do whatever they want in the house because they're not Jesus, you know, but, um, and it's not just their house. And I, I don't think you want to do that to your husband anyway. So, um, but in relationship to Jesus, it's his house. He gets to decide. You need to ask him what you want, what do you want to do with that couch, right? And, and he's going to, dwell there, and he's going to reshape it, and you're going to submit to that. And that's the only way your heart can be reshaped and reordered to be a place that love resides. Because all sin is a contradiction of love, properly understood. Now, you wouldn't say that. Like, in our flesh, we don't say that. We're like, well, everything that I'm holding on to that's not of Jesus, you know, will keep me from loving. Like, I can—no, okay, I get that. But theologically speaking, if we, in relation to the truth of what love actually is, as inspired and empowered by the Spirit and ordered by the dwelling of Christ himself, everything that resides in you that is not of Jesus or dwelling in it with Christ is an offense against love. All of it. Every bit of it. Every sin is an offense against love. Properly understood. And so your heart, the things that are in there that don't want to play ball with Jesus, that don't want him to be fully dwelling there, are all— love insulators. They keep the, the electricity of love from flowing. They're not conductors of love. And you gotta get all that out of there. And Jesus dwelling there in the spirit, in your inner man, in the heart, in that process being worked out, that is necessary for you to ever really apprehend in larger wonder and beauty, the love of Christ, right? And it has to be done. It is—it must happen in every believer, and it must happen progressively every day, right? And then third, the next that is that if the Spirit works in your inner person, but his power by the Spirit in your inner person, that Christ may dwell in you through faith, that— and then in the Greek, what they do is they put the emphasis word at the beginning or at the end. So it says that in love, you would be rooted and established, right? So that if the Spirit works in you and then Christ dwells in your heart, then what begins to happen is you is love itself can actually take residence inside you and be rooted and its foundation can be created, right? So the two metaphors obviously are roots of a tree, 
that don't—they not only stabilize the tree so it's not blown over in suffering, but they actually pull up the groundwater that gives the whole tree life. Right? And you might be like, well, well Nick, isn't like the truth of the gospel, like the life of it, right, that, that brings us to love? No, in the end, it's your love of truth that gives truth life. It, it's always—it's always love. It's always love. It's not just your love of people. It's your love of truth and your love of God and your love of everything that's good. It's always love. It's always love. The, the, the nutrients and the nutrition and the strength and the power, it always comes from love or hate. And hate is love is a zombie, right? It's, it, its strength is because it's kind of like love and it's using love's energy. And in using love's energy, it's incredibly strong, right? But it's also poisonous. The only way to get that much strength is through love, not truth. Truth is the light, but it's not the fire. And so you can't actually end up—you can't be a Christian floating head. Listen, I, I've tried to do it for a couple of decades, right? You can't—you can't be this person that's like so focused on the truth, with a truth so ordered in your mind that you know what to do at every time. You know what you should do. You're self-controlled. You have discipline. You're ready to go. Like, that's a great way to have a nervous breakdown. Incredible anxiety, depression, like to turn away from Jesus. Listen, the fire of the power is in love. You have to open your heart to that. You have to receive it in Christ. You have to let him open up the aperture and see the wonder of the expanding beauty of Christ. And you have to let love, through the working of the Spirit and the dwelling of Christ, begin to put down the roots of love in your heart and to form the foundation that anything can be built on. Everything of spiritual value built in your life will be built on the foundation of love. Everything. Now, it's true you can't have love—you can't have love without truth. Because what love is always requires content, right? You have to always have to decide what love is in this context. And so love can't have any definition without truth. But love is still the residing virtue. Truth can inform love. It can never be love. Truth is love's bridesmaid. Love is the bride. And then fifth is you have to live it out together with all the saints, right? Or all the holy ones, or all the ones who believe in Jesus and belong to him. So it literally says, it says, so that you would see the height and depth together with all the saints— See the height, depth, breadth, and width, and to know the unknowable. That is, the love of Christ. Right? Why does it say with all the saints? Well, for two reasons. One is, what's the context here? What's the application? It's still Ephesians 3. This is still about the dividing walls of hostility. This is still about the racial divisions and the interpersonal divisions and the temperament divisions and all the things that divide, divide people. This comes right after what Lloyd preached on last week. This is still about the church being one. Right? And so— you have to do that together. You can't not do that together. How do you become one together, not together? It's like saying your marriage is going great after you've been divorced for 10 years. You know, it, it doesn't make any sense, right? Um, now, there's two reasons why functionally it has to be done together. The, the first is, is that doing it together is the only way you can know that what you're professing isn't just theoretical, right? Right? Um, 
a lot of us have heard the message of the gospel. We profess the message of the gospel. We say we believe it, right? But you only know you believe it. The only way to know it's not just theoretical, that you're not just lying to yourself, is when you do it with other people who annoy you, right? Only when you're around people who you have difficulty with do you realize how far it goes. So C.S. Lewis once said, only the man who fully resists temptation will ever know temptation's full weight, right? The, the, the guy who's, or the girl who's like addicted to pornography, and the minute they feel an urge to do it, they just give up and they just do it. They have no idea what temptation is. They're like, I know, I, I know what temptation is. I feel temptation all the time. I feel so much temptation, I'm addicted to that. You don't know temptation. Jesus knows temptation, because Jesus never sinned. In every situation of temptation, he experienced temptation to the very end until it broke. He knows exactly how far temptation will always go. He knows. Anybody who sins doesn't know because you quit before it ended, right? And so some of us who think that we're incredibly tempted, you have no idea how much you've been tempted. You, you, you don't have any idea how far. You could be tempted 50 times more than you've been tempted, right? But when you grow in Christ and in the strength that Paul is talking about, you'll be able to endure 500 times the temptation you can endure right now, right? Similarly, you don't know what love is until you love in the hardest places. Right? I have no idea. I have no idea how much I love my wife. That's kind of depressing, right? We've been married 20 years. I have no idea how much I love her. Because she's great. Like, yeah, she, you know, she's a little pissy now and then, but she's great. She's a wonderful woman. Like, she's a great mother. She's a great wife. She's always building up our family and our home. She supports me incredibly. She prays for me all the time. She's just, a, I mean, yeah, she's got her failures like every human being, okay? Like, she, she's got feet of clay, as they say, right? But she's, she's great. So I have no idea how much I love her. I love her sufficiently for us to have a good marriage. I don't know if that's like two ounces of love or 50 pounds. I have no idea. And I don't know what 500 pounds feels like. It's just not that hard. You know? Some of you, like, you know. Like, you're like, oh man, I know the way to love to at least a certain extent. Because the harder it is, the more difficult it is to love, the more you, the more you have to figure out how much you love. Like, because you know how much you love on the basis of when you're willing to quit. Right? I mean, that's not literally exactly true, but it's predominantly true. Right? Sometimes the right thing is to cut losses or to do discipline and push somebody away for— like, that's, that's literally true, but most of us use that as an excuse to quit on people and things long before we ever should. Right? And so you and I have to live it out together with the saints. Or we don't know if it's just theoretical. But the other thing, too, is, is that if you don't live it out with other people— you can actually become too introspective, and it can begin to poison itself, right? Too much solitude, too much introspection isn't good, right? Um, like, what's the worst punishment that you can do to people? Well, arguably torturing them, but you're not allowed to really do that. So the next thing is solitary confinement, right? You separate them from all other human beings. Because it's horrible, right? But what's the first thing you want to do when you've been really hurt? Separate yourself from other people who might hurt you, right? You get hurt, and then you want to inflict on yourself the worst possible human punishment. And then what does that do? It closes down your heart. It pushes out the Spirit of God. It tells Jesus he cannot dwell in the place he wants to dwell, because he wants to keep your heart open. So Jesus is very hospitable. He doesn't even want to lock the front door of your heart. He wants to love all these people around you, even the people who want to hurt you. He's crazy, 
right? So you're going to be like, Jesus, why don't you go on a vacation or something for a while? Just like go to the seashore. I'm going to lock things up for a while, right? And you're well-meaning by it, right? But what it does is, is that like all the rodents come in, come in and none of the people can. You know what I mean? It just, it, the whole thing begins to toxify. And so there's a certain amount of introspection where you're like, well, I need the Holy Spirit inside of me, and I'm open to God, and he's, his power is working in my inner man, and then Christ is dwelling in me, and like, I, love is rooted in me, and like, you're like, but is it really rooted in me? And am I loving or am I not loving? Sometimes you just gotta get out of your head and love another human being and forget about yourself. There is way, there, you can be too spiritually introspective, and it can actually ruin your faith. It can make you go insane. That's one of the reasons why God is always commanding you to go towards other people and love them. Because it keeps you away from the unhealthy introspection that can destroy all of the inner life of Christian mysticism. Like, yes, is there a mystical way in which God comes into our life by his spirit and does things inside us? Absolutely. Absolutely. But when that becomes like more than half of your Christianity and you're doing it by yourself and you're not actually loving other concrete people, it actually befouls itself, confuses, and drives you insane. And you don't want that. Right? Okay, so a couple applications. I'm going to go through these fairly quickly because I've already talked about most of them, but I just want to review because I want you to take some of them with you. The first is you have to get gracious striving in your heart and mind, and you have to get that right, which is this. God gives you everything. Every verb in this is passive. God is doing all of it. It is his power. It's his power. It's not your power. It's his power. And yet, in every situation, there is this assumption that we are going to act to receive it, to take hold of it, to open our heart to God's dwelling, to open ourselves to God's Spirit coming into us, to wanting love to be rooted and established in us, to be together with all the saints so that we can figure out the height and depth and breadth and width, so that we can see the unknowable, so that together we can open the aperture and see the breadth of the beauty of God in the love of Christ. Right? You have to get that right, that it's all gift, and yet there's deep striving you're like, you know, when I listen to these, Nick, I feel like I got to do better. I feel like I'm not doing good enough. It's kind of depressing. It should—okay, you should feel like you're not doing good enough, but it shouldn't be depressing. You should feel almost every time you hear a sermon about Jesus, you should feel like, man, I could do this so much better. And you should feel that Jesus loves you right where you are, and there's so much hope for how much more he's going to do. That the you that is today is not going to be the you that is tomorrow. The you that is right now is not going to be the you that's in three years that you are going to grow and be strengthened and changed, that you're not cursed to whatever you're in right now, and that you can be all that God has given you in the divine nature, bearing the image of God, and not a slave to all that's in the flesh. That can be you. And if you, if you receive him this way each day, it will be you. Because remember what chapter 1 says? That this power is the same power God exerted to raise Jesus from the dead. And your malady, your problem of soul, your addiction is not harder to cure spiritually, power-wise, than physical death. Okay, so we gotta keep moving. Okay, sorry. Um, there is no fullness without spiritual imagination. You can't get through Christianity with a, a conservative faith, so to speak. Right? You can be colloquially, theologically conservative, i.e. you believe the Bible's Right? That's not what I mean. What I mean is like you're, you're not opening yourself to being expanded in the imagination of what God is doing in his spirit so that your vision and your imagination of what it means that Christ has loved you and the world and the universe in sin through his death by becoming a human being, all of that and what it all means to be always growing in imaginative expansion. 
an openness in your heart to be expanded. And in that, be contradicted and be terrified. Yes! Yes, yes. It's all the terrors of being liberal, like of like being open and loosey-goosey, and maybe I'll make mistakes, and who knows what's going to happen, or what God is going to do, or what I'll have to give up. Who knows? Yes, it's a roller coaster. It's supposed to be. Actually, if you really give yourself to Jesus and trust him, it's fun. It's kind of fun. It's humiliating, but it's fun. Because he'll take you places you never thought you'd go. You'll meet people you never thought you'd meet. You'll learn things you never thought you'd learn. You'll change in ways you never thought you could. But it's terrifying. And the only way you'll be able to bear it is not if you say, okay, I'm going to learn to love people more. I'm going to go talk to that person who's not my race because I'm supposed to the first nine minutes after the service is over. No. Turn to God, being strengthened by his spirit and your power, and let him open up your view of the love of Christ. And then, put your hands up and ride. Okay, Third is, there's no spiritual imagination without the cultivation of the heart. It's not just, it's not just simply like, be liberal. Like, open your mind and let— No, 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 no. It's—it also requires discipline and work and striving. You have to actually believe in Jesus and do the work of opening yourself up. Listen, listen to me. Um, you may, may be like, Nick, it was all—all all this was all emotional junk. Okay, listen. There's nothing as exhausting as doing the right thing emotionally. <laughs> There's nothing as hard for a human being, and there's nothing so exhausting as doing emo the emotionally right thing, especially when you feel emotionally tired. And so the work of cultivating the beauty and presence of Christ in the human heart is really tough, man. That's why he's infusing you with power by his spirit, if you'll open yourself to it. Because you need it. We all need it. Because sin is tiring to deal with, right? I gotta keep moving. Sorry. This is still about, like, this passage is still about breaking down the walls of hostility. That's one of the main functional applications of this. We have to do it together, and one of the reasons we have to do it together is all this is about so expanding so much in the love of Christ that when you don't like other people around you, the love of Christ reorients you. Okay, listen, I'm going to share about myself for a second here. Um, my neighborhood around the park that my family goes to um, has completely changed racially in its makeup in the last nine years. When we go to the park now, the only white people are like middle-aged liberal women who are kind of snippy. And, um, and then everybody else is like South, Con South Indian Indians or um, like uh, African Muslim or like there's a lot because it's kind of like this like pretty nice, crime-free, middle-class, but still relatively affordable kind of places, right? And, um, and at heart, like like, I think, really, I think it's a human nature thing in the flesh. Like, I'm racist like everybody else. Like, I, and not in the sense that, like, I don't like those people. But in the sense, like, I look at the way they look at me, and I wonder if we have anything in common. I wonder if they want to talk to me. I wonder if they have very different values than me. I wonder if, if the levers of power were in their hands, what they might do to me. Just like they feel about me. Just like whenever you feel like you're in the minority, that's how you feel. You wonder— what will happen if things get sideways a little bit? Or you wonder, like, what you share. You wonder, like, how to interact, right? And there, there is no, there is no political vision. There is no um, diversity seminar. There is no um, commentator on Fox News or CNN who's going to save me from that, okay? Ever. The only one who can cure my tribalism is the one who is the father over every tribe. 
and who has made one tribe out of all people. The only person is the one who can take me away from all that and say, Nick, open the aperture of your heart to see the love of Christ. Now look, look at it now. How wide is it? How deep is it? How broad is it? How long is it? Now see in your mind's eye all the peoples of the world. And now see in your mind's eye a sphere of the love of Christ as high and wide and long and deep as it is. And how much, how many of those people, how different are they that it encompasses? And in my mind's eye, in the openness of that imagination, in the love of Christ, I can say, all of them, Lord. It's all of them. It's all of them. And he says, yep. Yes, that's what this is always all about. I am making one new people, one new humanity out of the two. And I am getting rid of the walls of hostility. I do not believe that the church should be the most intercultural, interracial place where the wall, dividing walls of hostility are taken down because I think it goes along with the gospel. I actually believe that the gospel may be the only sufficient and reliable motivation, the only thing that can possibly bring human beings of different natural tribes together into one spiritual tribe reliably and fully. And then, fifth, you have to actually believe in God's grace. You have to believe that he wants to freely give you all that you need. Or this goes nowhere. You just go out there feeling like the sermon was too hard, you know, rather than that God wants to give you these things. And then six, you have to believe that God is responsive to prayer like he's responsive to nothing else, right? Secular people, the first thing we give up is prayer. We think transcendental meditation and yoga, all that stuff is more spiritual. And the reason we think it's more spiritual is because we feel something when we interact with our own spirit. And so meditation feels meaningful because we interact with our own spirit and we know that spirit is really there because we can interact with it and we're like, oh yeah, that's, that works. Or if we do yoga as originally intended within Hinduism— it, it's like has this like, it goes back to your, it goes out and back to yourself in a way that is perceivable. Buddhist meditation is similar in certain ways. You're working in some ways with your own spirit. Prayer is one of the only things that feels obsolete because it's actually more spiritual than the other things. You are actually reaching out to a personal spirit who is there, the spirit who is God. And um, it is not in any way obsolete. It is still the most cutting edge technology of spiritual interaction that has ever existed and will ever exist. Right? Talking to the one who is there who does all things. And so what, what we have to do as Christians is we have to capture this. We have to pray. Listen, let me, let me just self-disclosure, right? Um, I was at a fishing trip this week, and um, Frank Pekovich was talking about sermon. He was, he was talking to this other pastor, and he was like, so how do you guys prepare sermons? Because I think, like, you study the Bible, you pray for, like, hours, and you, like, God lays stuff on your heart. And I'm just like, like I, I, you would be appalled if you saw, like, a timesheet of me praying, Okay? You'd be appalled. Part of the reason for that is just my temperament. Like, I have a sleeping disorder that's similar to narcolepsy, where whenever I'm not engaged, I fall asleep. It's one of the reasons why if you come in for counseling, I'll almost always be drinking tea. Because it's a preemptive strike. Because if you're boring, and I will fall—I'll literally fall asleep. And so—and and like, it's not that you're boring, because obviously what you're saying is interesting to you, but I've heard it a million times because we're all the same, right? So I've heard the story you're telling me with a slightly different version 70 times, right? Even like the horrible stuff I've heard now. I mean, it's 20 years. I mean, I've heard about incest and like terrible abuse, like dozens and dozens of times. So like, now usually I don't need it, but you know, like I always do it just to make sure. Because it was embarrassing when I had to tell this lady to stop one time so I could go get a Dr. Pepper so I wouldn't fall asleep while she was telling me about her heartaches. So I just start with tea, right? To start with, right? And then in addition to that, I'm what people call ADD. So like, you get quiet, 
And if you're, I'm not focused on something, I want to focus on everything. And every thought that comes into my mind, it's really hard to stay focused. So imagine having a robust prayer life when your mind is going like this, and the minute it's not on something, you just fall asleep. <laughs> right? And, I, and it's been 20 years, you guys. Like, I'm 42, so it's been 27 years. And I stink. Listen, I will never stop on this. I will never stop trying to do that prayer. Ever. Ever. Because though I'm terrible at it, I believe in God's grace, that he loves me even though I'm terrible at it. And I believe that God responds to prayer like he responds to nothing else. Because scriptures teaches it everywhere. He wants us to turn directly to him, believing that he's there, telling him the truth as honestly as we know how, open to him contradicting us, recognizing we have our needs of him and from him, wanting to be corrected to the truth, finding our best frame of mind in that place of spiritual devotion to him, and finding ourselves again, pushing away the flesh and being empowered in the gospel, in the nature he made us in God's image, and to find ourselves in Christ so we can walk away and be his in a way we wouldn't have been otherwise with his providence and his help and his spirit. And you have to believe that. Otherwise, the secularity in you will cause you to emotionally just kind of give up on prayer because it just feels like you're talking to the ceiling. It has to come from a deep conviction about God and about prayer and God. This prayer is the one thing. Okay? This is his one prayer focused on the one thing. The one thing is, will you submit to the power of God working in you to ever expand your apprehension of the love of Christ? It's the only thing that can change you. Only thing that can change a human being long term. Will you submit to that? Will you give yourself to open yourself to his spirit? Will you give yourself to letting Christ dwell in your heart through faith? Will you give yourself to letting love begin to root and establish itself again in ways it hasn't or in ways you've pushed out? Will you let him clean house? Will you do it together with other extremely imperfect people who annoy the heck out of you and are very different from you and you don't know how to have a conversation with? Will you love them together with all the saints? Because if we do, if we do that, not only will you experience the fullness of Christ, which should be the, the greatest hopeful possibility you could imagine if you were a Christian. The, think of it. The fullness of Christ. But we together in the world will be the fullness of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, um, we just open our hearts to you. We need the power that you give not to beat our neighbors or to be wealthier or richer or um, free of all of our health problems, but mainly for your spirit to work in our hearts, the inner man, so that we would have the power to let Christ dwell in us through faith, so that love can be rooted and established in us, so that together with all of our brothers and sisters, we would be able to apprehend, to see, be strong enough to see the height and breadth and depth and width of the knowledge that is unknowable, the love of Christ. And we lay this before you, knowing what it says in verses 20 and 21, that you are able and willing to do more than we can ask or imagine. 
And we confess that you say that it is because of the power of Christ that is in us already. God, help us to believe it. Help us to walk in it. Help us to live in it. Help us to embrace it and receive it and to enjoy it and to be the fullness of Christ together. In Jesus' name.